everybody. Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Uh, today we have Richard Flyer. Um, nice to have you, Richard. Um, you sent me, we talked before, and you sent me some of your writing and told me a little bit about what you're doing. I found it all very interesting and very much in line with really, I, I guess, my, my main interest, which is creating networked bioregional economies that can survive um, the present and the future um, and are more regenerative, sustainable, and more enlivening for people. So, uh, and you have a lot of experience, I think that directly pertains to my core interests. So welcome, nice to have you, Richard. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoy your show and I definitely enjoy following your uh, tweets on Twitter, so. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, why don't you start by, by giving a little bit of background and maybe, uh, leading up to uh, um, uh, Sarvodaya and your experience in Sarvodaya and how that has influenced all of your work. Excellent, and yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, really enjoyed being here. Um, well, Sarvodaya has been a mass movement for 60 years. 1959 it started. Um, I, I heard about it in, 1991. It was at a time, you know, after the early 80s, I was involved in a, what I guess was called the nuclear freeze movement. And there was a lot of political turmoil uh, then, uh, polarization. So I was involved and got involved in community um, as I was working on my master's in, uh, in biology. And then I was looking for alternatives that could bring people together. That's what I recognized is that we were really divided. And I was working in a low-income neighborhood in San Diego, California at the time. Um, you know, we're talking like late 1980s. And what I found was you had, it was the highest poverty area in that county of 2 million people. There were maybe 50,000 multi-ethnic community and I just naturally responded to this division. There was a problem with gang and drug violence. There was like drug dealers on the street corner, um, the San Diego Police Department, they would just like drive by. I mean, we're talking about 40 people dealing drugs on the corner. And it was probably because it was within a low income neighborhood and not in like La Jolla, mm -hmm. you know, which is really a wealthy community or Claremont. Um, I don't think they would have tolerated that there. So I started my work in connecting and it, it came naturally to me because I, I enjoy it. I am really passionate about uh, connecting people and organizations. And what we did at the time was realize that there was like the uh, black community uh, uh, leadership running nonprofits and it was Hispanic community. So this is really two distinct uh, uh, groups of individuals, people, in that community and they were competing for government funds to run their nonprofits. But then also the, the churches were also, you know, there were black churches and there were Hispanic churches and there were some mixed uh, areas. So that, but basically these groups and people didn't work together. And then if you add the officialdom, the city of, of San Diego and the police department, they weren't really collaborating and cooperating to deal with this challenge. So that's where I got my first uh, experience really of building what I call symbiotic networks, where you're able to bring 
unlikely folks together who may not normally work together for a variety of reasons and, and focus on, on, on shared common interests. And as a result, we build a, a movement, really like a peace movement, but in the neighborhood uh, to deal with the problem of gang, gang violence and all these proliferation of uh, drug houses that were like owned by absentee landlords that didn't really care about it. So we really were able to lead that towards building at the time what was a food cooperative. It was a low income food co-op. At the time it was the second uh, one in the United States and then we continued. Um, so it was that experience and around that time I found out about Sarvodia and I was real excited that there was an actual movement somewhere in the world that combined fundamental or universal spiritual values that were in our nature with community transformation, with building full-on bioregional ecosystems, ecosystems of organizations uh, that were focusing in a multifaceted way on all interrelated issues in any given, at the time, villages, and now they're towns. And now they have, they have 5,000 bioregional economies that are linked nationally. Um, so they continue to uh, this day. So that was one of the major influences for, for me to try to translate more and more, you know, the last 30 years, uh, their methods and, and yeah. principles. Let me uh, just jump in real quick. So uh, Sarvodia, I pronounced it wrong uh, before, even though you told me before we started recording. <laughs> That's okay. My fault. Uh, Sarvodia, so this is um, kind of a, a national bioregional network in Sri Lanka, correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. And can you talk a little bit about kind of the context of Sri Lanka in general, kind of the historical context? And I know that in the news lately, there's been reports of uh, energy crisis, economic collapse, yeah. things. How is, you know, how is Sarvodia, you know, kind of in response to these historical factors and, you know, and today, you know, how is it kind of... Yeah. You know, I, I imagine it's providing, you know, kind of a mutual aid, mutual support network when the larger macro structures are kind of breaking down. I'm um, just curious to, to get, get more context there. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I was there for almost six months this year. Uh, came back to the U.S. Um, early June. And yeah, I, I'd liken it to Sri Lanka's like the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Globally. And that was the insight I had as I was watching this steady, like almost like forced drawdown, forced, you know, you know, less use of, of fossil fuels, diesel and gas, and then their power and, and then the uh, other economic problems uh, that, that they have. But the larger context is they have a colonial history. So they achieved independence late 1940s, kind of alongside like India at the same time. And they just had a, a sequence of leaders that, especially in the last 30 years, have seemed to have been dominated by a particular some particular families, wealthy families that are focused on extraction rather than just public service. And it sounds familiar because I think that's, that's happening globally. So that's not uh, unique to Sri Lanka. Uh, but there, it's an island nation, uh, 22 million people, and they've been struggling with a civil war 
between uh, a group in the north and then in the south, which is dominated by um, the other ethnic group, the Sinhalese. The, um, you know, so there's been uh, some inherent conflict post-independence between these ethnic groups, but also between the various religions. So it's a primarily a Buddhist country. And um, they, yeah, so the, that, that's been a challenge. But so even during the civil war, Sarbodia provided a stabilizing influence in that they would bring together people and resources and communities across that divide between the North and the South. Recently, um, it's very, very interesting kind of side story is that the government made this impetuous decision, which was a good decision in terms of you had like a phased in approach, but overnight they went to full on organic. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the challenge with that strategy is that there was no phase in like five years, it was immediate. So they immediately had a 30%, you know, within six months, 30% uh, reduction in their rice crop. So there were protests by farmers about this policy uh, probably a year and a half ago. And that was just the beginning. And then if you add some uh, large infrastructure projects, for example, pretty much identifying and selling the, this prime real estate next to the capital to the Chinese for their use and, and uh, use Chinese money to build a big port. Mm -hmm. So there were these huge multi-billion dollar projects. So there's a lot of financial mismanagement. So probably fast forward early this year, um, you know, that's when the problems started with um, lack of funds, you know, from the government and they, <clears throat> had an import-export policy shifting, and it just uh, has been declining uh, ever since. So they have pretty much not been able to pay their foreign debt. Mm -hmm. So their power outages up to 13 hours a day while I was there. Um, you've got fuel lines, like people, like trucks getting diesel. Like some days diesel is not there, you're waiting five hours. You know, just average person who's using gas also as well. And there's like a million tuk-tuk drivers, you know, that provide the taxi force for the country and they're waiting. I mean, it's just suffering on a scale that I've, I've not witnessed. And I was in an apartment that had a backup generator, but even that backup generator ran out of backup diesel right. and it's hot. It's like, you know, mid 80s, 80% humidity. So that kind of environment, imagine not having fans, let alone air conditioning. It's really hard on the people. So the protest movement developed amongst the youth, which was really amazing. And I got to um, view it, participate in it and learn from some of the organizers. And the last thing I'd like to say is I noticed a really evolved approach that they use to organize mass demonstrations against the government and the government mismanagement of this energy and food and inflation crisis. 
never seen it before. And I've seen and followed like Arab Spring and I've been involved in peace movements before. This was definitely unique in the way that they organized the, the protests and the activities of the protest movement. It did not involve domination by the political parties or traditional labor unions or left-wing groups that would typically kind of jump in. And I remember strategizing with like, you know, a hundred leaders and people arguing about, hey, what's the, what are we gonna be? What's our stand? What are we doing? They didn't do that. It just was spontaneous. These 20 and 30 year olds that were just right on social media. And they, I think somehow it's in their network consciousness that they've been using social media so long now. And it was pretty refreshing. And they had 20,000 people out um, and they made some, some headways. There's some challenges though. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the context. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit more about um, uh, uh, Servodaya in terms of just what, what is it? What is a bioregional network? And I'm, I'm really curious, you know, framing this question, you know, in the context of, I, you know, I, I personally think that we need to be building kind of bioregional economies all over the world and, and networking these economies. And I think you agree, you know, we have a kind of a similar, uh, similar vision there uh, to basically prepare to, you know, live with less, probably less energy throughput, you know, more circular material flows, uh, regenerative, regenerative agriculture, um, and how, you know, thinking bioregionally uh, and thinking through these kind of networked economies, um, you know, like what, what, what does that mean? What is that composed of? How is that different than our current uh, economic model today? Uh, love to chat about it. It's, it's so inspiring to me. And it's what I saw immediately. <clears throat> Dr. A.T. Aryaratne, who's the founder of the Sarbodia movement, um, learned about the Indian version of Sarbodia that was promoted by Mahatma Gandhi, mm -hmm. probably as early as the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And Sarbodia stands for the welfare of all. Mm -hmm. And in an Indian sense, and Dr. Ari, has, translated it being a Buddhist as the awakening of all through the sharing of resources, labor, energy, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. what, what's really powerful about it is the vision. Mahatma Gandhi's vision was for India anyway, a commonwealth of village republics. And the point of it was to address the centralized economic and political power of empire. In that case, the British empire and the allied East Indian Corporation, which was like the major first maybe transnational corporation of the day. We're talking going back to 19th century. Mm -hmm. So Mahatma Gandhi's strategy of building a commonwealth of village republics was in a sense building and reestablishing village industry, bioregionalism, even though they didn't have that name back then. Mm -hmm. So that vision of Sarvodia of building a commonwealth. Dr. Ari took it and deployed it and implemented it in Sri Lanka with a Buddhist context. But he, Sarvodia has a global vision they call Vishvodia, and Vishvodia is world awakening. And it involves an extension of what they've been doing um, on the ground in Sri Lanka for 60 years. Nice. Yeah. Um, interesting. Um, do you, you, you mentioned that uh, 
that you see so this this kind of like global awakening like like, like you are pretty you from what i've gathered you're pretty optimistic that that's where the world is heading or or, or it needs to head if it's if, if humans are gonna you know continue living on this planet um that there needs to be some kind of global um uh transition towards uh these networked bioregional economies do you, do you want to talk about that that idea that vision and and how that how, how your ideas product networks fits in Excellent. So I'd say I'm in alignment about the Doomer Optimist piece. I, I really think that's what's happening. The, the Doomer part may not be full on collapse. I look at it as the development of a worldwide authoritarian regime with a new military force, some type of restructuring of the UN as a way of dealing with the collapses that are that are happening. So I believe it's neck and neck between the creation of even more centralization of the financial, corporate, political interests on the planet with the UN and all other multinational players forming some type of new system that will be even more intrusive in terms of surveillance, in terms of trying to get us to act a certain way, to feel a certain way, to think a certain way, and to be happy about it. Yeah. That's the doomer part rather than the collapse part. On the flip side is the already existing millions of people and organizations and companies working at the grassroots already, probably for decades, that are on the ground, that have experience dealing with real communities, you know, the economic, the social, the political, the cultural, all those pieces. They're already in place in a sense, and especially in the last five to 10 years, there's been this heightening awareness, especially around climate change and the impact. So it's accelerated uh, activism and community development. And now that process has gone to the neighborhood level even. So like sub bioregion into neighborhoods where I'm seeing a greater and greater amount of neighborhoods that are um, themselves uh, being activated. So this, this piece of you know, building bioregional ecosystems isn't a matter of doing something you know, like some new idea. It's about connecting across the tribes, the separate silos mm -hmm. that we've organized community in. It's a matter of developing networks. I call them symbiotic networks that connect across these differences that have kept us uh, from working uh, collectively. And that's what I believe is the next phase, which is to take all the, you know, the existing uh, movements, networks, and, and organizations already uh, doing good and connecting that good and giving people the tools to empower themselves, networks that they name, not some external, like a non, even a nonprofit, like even people like us that are trying to be active and activate others. You know, when we try to impose our ideas, even if they're good ones, mm -hmm. it's really restrictive and it restricts freedom. Even if we might agree with it, it's still trying to impose, quote, outside ideas on communities. And that's what I've learned from Sarvodia is how to 
help communities empower themselves so that they're owning what they're doing. They control it. There's no outside you know, presumption that they're part of some, co even like a coalition is not a good name for something like this. So that mm -hmm. something's developing now that's new in human history, partly as a result of the digital technologies that have created a network consciousness, both locally and globally. It allows for the possibility of the interface between digital social networks and on the ground physical community networks that can come together to create an aggregation of both financial and political power in each local bioregion. Mm. And then connecting that in some type of global trading network from the bottom up, I believe that's a strategy that will have a how do I say it? We need a countervailing economic power yeah. to essentially uh, outcompete, out un to undergrow mm -hmm. this global economic system, not overthrow, but undergrow it using new technologies as well as new social technologies of bringing everybody together. So that's, that's what I've been um, excited about. Yeah, and a while a while back, you had a, a bit of a spicy tweet talking about um, you know Servodio being kind of like the, the largest of one of these networks and being relatively ignored by people in kind of the bioregionalism localism space. Um, and you had some ideas why. Do you want to? Do, do you feel like getting into that? Of uh, you know why has this example that that you see is you know, can be an example for so many other parts of the world that, you know, are probably going to be facing a lot of the same economic challenges uh, moving forward that Sri Lanka is. Like, why, why is this case study, why is this example being, being ignored? Is it being it's a, it's, Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Mm -hmm. You know, now they, you know, Sarvodia has achieved world-renowned, Dr. Ari and the movement have achieved, you know, all sorts of acknowledgments. Um, Actually, there was like a, a picture of Dr. Ari being received in the White House with uh, President Clinton mm -hmm. and at the time his wife, the First Lady, uh, Hillary Clinton. So they were acknowledged by the Democrats, but even like the former Senator Bill Frist, a Republican, acknowledged during the tsunami, you know, in the early 2000s that affected Southeast Asia, how amazing the work of Sarvodia was. So that said, obviously there's been a lot of uh, public awareness. That's one thing, but the other is, I was speaking primarily about um, taking that model mm -hmm. and really figuring out how to translate it, acknowledging it. Like literally, why aren't there more ambassadors from Western organizations like going there to really understand it? Now that's true that people have gone for decades to volunteer, um, internationally to try to understand it, but there's not been a concerted effort by a broader movement to, to understand and translate it. Now, part of it could be the cycle of just the history of economic development from the, the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and these global organizations. Their perspective for 50 years has been top-down development from the outside that is extremely, um, you know, they impose 
their approach from the outside. And that's not how Sarvodia works. So it would probably that these large global organizations, they see Sarvodia maybe before as kind of innocuous, but it doesn't, they don't get the same control factor. Like if you're an outside person in planning and economic development, you're like a professional. Mm you know, then if you encounter a movement that actually shows that you may not need these professionals to perform a function, they lose their status. So part of it is cultural and it's in the cycle of the development of that whole field of, of uh, economic development in the quote, third world, you know, uh, developing uh, context. So it's been external, it's been colonizing and they're just not interested really. But things have changed, obviously, in the last five years. Things have changed in the last six months um, in terms of the war um, with uh, Russia and Ukraine, in terms of how that affects global supply chains. Now, people are starting to really freak out about it. And I, I think that's a good thing because now they're taking these uh, concerns about supply chain and how do we like feed ourselves? How do we provide power and energy? Um, how do we do that? And then they're taking those conversations back to national levels. And at some point, I, I believe in the next six months to a year, these conversations are going to be mainstream at community and bioregional levels. So that's the first thing is I think that just there's just not a lot of money in in helping communities to empower themselves because then there's not the need for the professional class of people to do that. Uh, kind of uh, economic development from outside. The other piece is those Westerners that are not development professionals, but really uh, insightful folks in the field of regenerative community and, and sustainability. And I, I think part of it is that what we do when we develop movements, because I've been involved in social economic and community movements for 40 years or more. Yeah. So I've, I've been observing this, and that is that even in really in movements that we support, we tend to form our own or get stuck in our own bubble without knowing it. That is that we seek out people that are like-minded, that think like us. That's just so normal. The normal way that people form community is Community is about safety. It's about comfort. It's not about challenge. It's not about like challenging your own ideas. It's about finding people that are like us. So the regenerative community movement, I believe uh, there, there could be a potential expansion beyond just identifying enterprises like permaculture, farming, regenerative agriculture as the only types of organizations or efforts that would be included in a movement to regenerate community and the planet. So I think there needs to be an expansion beyond the traditional, just focusing on those that might be, you know, similar in view uh, uh, to what we have. So basically what I'm saying is just getting together permaculture farms, and other kinds of regenerative like uh, projects in a community is not enough energy in terms of the overall culture that we live in to turn this around. And it, it's great 
from the point of view of demonstrating beautiful models. And I'm part of that myself. I mean, I'm part of a regenerative ag, um, helping to build a centropic food forest in the North Kohala area of the Big Island of Hawaii, looking to build a, a local food system network in Oahu, where, where I'm based now. Uh, so those are some of the, those are a couple of challenges. Right, right. Um, what would kind of, you know, expanding, expanding the, the, the network look like? So I'm, and, and maybe if you want to bring in your experience uh, in, in Nevada, Northern Nevada, uh, yeah. that you've written about, uh, where you brought together all of these kind of what you call super connectors and because I'm thinking in terms of, say, you know, I'm thinking in terms of my region, right? And we have kind of the local food movement. Uh, and then we have basically kind of supermarket supply chains, which yeah. uh, basically are not very local, except that their retail outlets are, are local. Right. And so, like, what would it look like, say, for the, you know, local regenerative food movement, say, in a place like this? Um, like, would we... Would we try and set meetings with, uh, you know, supermarket managers and you know try to convince them to source more local food or like what what does it look like especially when interests like financial interests just seem so misaligned? Well, let me address I think maybe the first part of the question, which is how do we expand our existing networks of all the good that's already being that's already happening. Mm -hmm. So I saw this when we build a local economy by local movement in 2003, mm -hmm. um, I noticed that there was a segment of folks that wanted it to be primarily a quote green business network. Yeah. And I, I realized that that was a division in terms of strategy. Obviously people were supportive of each other's work, but in terms of strategy, like how do we bring people together? There was a segment that wanted to do just green only. And we decided that that would be too limiting and instead um, had from conventional organizations, nonprofits, conventional businesses to ones that were into regeneration and that could be considered green. And we repeated that when we built a local food system network in 2005, we had a lot of folks that said, hey, this should just be for, or at the time, organic farmers. You know, people into permaculture, and we shouldn't allow conventional farmers to participate. And I, that's why I'm talking about the silos. We, yeah. we um, decided to be inclusive. We decided that one of the values of a regenerative community, and what I've learned as a biologist, and what I've learned from being in nature, is interconnection and diversity. We need that diversity. So the way you manifest it in a community is building a bio-regional bio ecosystem that includes organizations from conventional to regenerative without imposing a view on anybody that they should be any particular way. And yet having the value of the regenerative producers and people involved in that movement being able to share with the other members of a network like conventional farmers. And I found that's more effective. That's what actually happened in the local food system network we built in Northern Nevada. Uh, the first uh, super connector was a historic uh, a farmer 
who had been in the area for 120 years, he wasn't even selling locally. He, he was literally a selling one crop wholesale out of the region. Mm -hmm. So when I brought the idea of forming a local food system network, first of all, he thought he already was doing it because that's the common reaction. People think that their network is the thing. So we talked about a little bit. He wasn't selling to farmer's markets. He wasn't doing any CSAs. He wasn't having any farm to table programs and all these kinds of connections that he could have had. So he decided to get involved. And yes, it could have been at the time interest in just expanding his business, but that's okay. So we combined a regenerative approach with a local regional uh, market approach. And we found that that's very healthy uh, balance, especially if you define local as businesses and organizations that are within 50 miles of a particular municipal center or county area. Mm -hmm. What happened with that farmer, five years later, every time I see him or I'd see him like at a Earth Day, he has a booth or something like that. He's always said, oh my God, that was so amazing. I, my, you know, he became really like the biggest, almost organic farmer in the region. Mm, yeah. Through market linkages. He started one of the, the biggest uh, community supported agriculture, CSA programs. Yeah. I mean, at the time there was just one. Yeah. Now there's like 10. Um, and he wasn't interacting with farmers markets. Now he's, he's participating. So it really expanded the capacity of his land to grow regeneratively, even though he started as a conventional farmer. So that's the first piece, which is how to strategically think of expanding a network. And then the second piece, do you want me to continue or do you have another follow-up to that? Yeah, continue. Yeah, the second piece is the piece that you talked about, which is the mechanics of it like operationally, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you uh, connect um, in such a way to become effective? So what we've learned, what we call symbiotic networks and symbiosis is a term for us is intentional mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. Everything we do as a person, everything we do organizationally in networks is done from the consciousness of intentional mutual benefit which takes us out of our silo, which is based in our ego and what we like and our comfort and our safety and our, and our bubbles. And it pushes us to develop these, what I call intertribal relationships with other networks. Basically communities in general are at some level of clustering of networks. So networks themselves tend to get separated and fragmented. So the field of network science, complexity theory has been around now. And there are a number of what are called network weaver luminaries like June Holly is somebody that I learned from. And it's basically how to identify these network clusters. So if you take an area like food, you're talking about looking at connecting producers. So we're talking about ranchers, we're talking about farmers, talking about value added producers like honey and other kinds of, of production and connecting that to the clusters of consumers. The consumers would be like restaurateurs, grocers, uh, they would be farmers market, community supported agriculture, 
uh, programs, um, organic uh, community activists, uh, food co-op. We had a developing food cooperative at that same time that grew. Now it's one of the nation's fastest growing still to this day. So you find all these clusters and you you have to do some type of analysis. You don't have to use software, um, but you can analyze networks by simply asking questions, finding out who's doing what. Um, I was participating in an online regenerative uh, community forum out of uh, Zurich um, that uh, Daniel Christian Wall uh, was part of. Yeah. And they call it systemic cycles. So they're, one of their methods for doing that is biking around in a region and just getting to know the farmers, getting to know the components of a system. So what we've done with symbiotic networks, we've just systematized the process in a step-by-step -step manner. So you could identify first these separate clusters strategically, plus you wanna make sure that those cluster leaders themselves are capable of operating in a mutual benefit environment, like that they're there for the right reasons. And that's possible, but you have to be selective. And that's part of uh, developing what we call and what's generally considered an local food system network, which has a specific functional purpose that's been defined. And it has to do with connecting all the players in a food system, both regeneratively, but as a market. You're literally building a marketplace. So it's gonna involve everybody in that, in that sense. And that's how it works its magic. It releases frozen assets that have been there in the previous silo-based system. They're just sitting there. There's not the information, communication and network. So you're opening up this amazing uh, access to new resources. And then you have the collective intelligence of the people that are the organizers of something like this. Then there's the emergence of a new networked uh, system. And, and that's, that's what I've been doing. Yeah, and you want to talk a little bit more about in in your book chapter. You talked about how you decided that it wouldn't be, a, say, a nonprofit. For example, um, it wouldn't be a particular project like people had suggested. Hey, let's let's build a community garden, right? It it, it was something a little sounds a little bit more meta, like you know, no, actually, you know, building the network itself is not deciding what arises out of it. It's it's just it's 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 making the connections, forming the relationships, um, you know, around shared values and virtues, and then you know, and then kind of the magic happens on its own. You know, there's a, there's this you know emergence phenomenon. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's it's a big it's a big topic, but yeah, I, I'd love to start. So one thing I noticed in my organizing over the decades is how. We love projects, human beings, you know, we just love focusing on this minutia. And then we attract capital, uh, we attract volunteers, partners, and, and we get a lot of joy uh, from it. But think about it from a deeper perspective. Like if you want to deal with the underlying challenge of global climate change, or if you want to deal with the challenge of poverty, you want to deal with food insecurity, you want to deal with hunger and homelessness and those kinds of issues, you have to be more systematic. For example, like in Reno, there's, I think there's like 20 organizations that are 
focusing on homelessness. And yet the way they're approaching it, even though they have some collaboration, there's just no way they can solve the problem of homelessness. So why would you wanna be the, the person that creates the 21st organization trying to solve homelessness in just because you feel like you're passionate about it. So I get it. Everybody has a right to do and they should be able to do whatever they want, like help. And that's a beautiful thing. But if it's not connected to a deeper, like you said, a meta issue, if it's not systemic and it's not doing transformation, then it's just dealing with the externalities of the existing materialist system, which keeps reproducing these problems. <clears throat> so that's, a, that's one thing. So I did notice that you're right. Um, when prior to starting the local food system network, the the general flavor is people want projects. So people were talked about, hey, let's build this community garden, or you know, another person they had their pet project, and I didn't know it at the time because I was just following my intuition, following my guide, following my my background, my understanding, my experience. I was experimenting. And um, we, we went with building this meta network context in food. So it was a meta network. So developing food system consciousness, which is radically different than building a project. Because when you build a project like a community garden, and I've done that, and I built a food co-op, I built all these projects, there's a lot of bandwidth that goes to that. It's a formal structure. So it may need funding, may need a formal organization, legal financial structure, um, takes time, bandwidth. So the more time you're doing that, the more you're focusing on a project, which itself becomes a silo. And it's a beautiful silo, but it's a silo in the context of, of system change. Mm -hmm. Instead of doing that, we were looking, like you said, at the context and the context is building a network that was a, multi-nodal distributed network. It kind of would look like blockchain as a distributed network where there's no higher, there's no lower because we want and believe that people can make decisions together. So there's shared leadership. There's no need to do a formal nonprofit or for-profit uh, for structure. There's no need for management because you know, according to some recent studies, people can self-organize and manage up to 50 literally 50 people around a table mm -hmm. without, you know, specific, you know, um, developing separate management structures. Yes, there's management committees that could be formed within a, a group of leaders. Um, however, you didn't need 50 leaders to develop a local food system network. You know, you maybe need 20 that are the basis of it. So it's what we found is that with a gentle kind of distributed network structure, especially when you have a functional purpose, which is to grow more food and to consume more food locally, which is the main purpose. When you keep it narrow like that, then it's possible to avoid a lot of the challenges of dissension and infighting and factions and egoic behavior. Yeah. And you can create this, what we call symbiotic culture DNA, which is around intentional mutual benefit. How can we do something that benefits ourselves, our organizations, our businesses, and at the same time build this meta, you know, local food system network? Did I answer your question, Jason? Yeah, oh. yeah. Well, let me, um, <laughs> uh, let's unpack this a bit more. Um, so if I 
I mean, so me personally, I'm, I'm, you know, I've spent the last couple of years being in a new, in a new place, new bioregion in Southern Appalachia. And I'm, you know, uh, very interested in kind of, I'm still, I feel like in a fact finding phase where I'm just trying to understand the layout, right? Just trying to meet people, uh, understand the various organizations that are devoted to kind of local food systems, bioregionalism in general. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking for a while that's, you know, I think a role that I could play because I also see myself as a person who, you know, with the ability to kind of connect across silos. Um, I've, I've called this mimetic mediation in the past. Uh, you know, a role that I could help play is connecting organizations that are already doing great work, uh, but unfreezing those assets, you know, intellectual, physical assets, uh, cultural assets, and, you know, helping, you know, logistically uh, just kind of figure out where the bottlenecks are in the food system, you know, how can, how can things be improved, how can it become more resilient more regenerative, all of these things. And so, and I think a lot of people in Doomer Optimism Network are interested, particularly in local food systems, um, as well as local material, uh, you know, uh, you know, other kinds of, uh, other kinds of goods and crafts and, and things. But, you know, if, for the people listening and myself who, uh, you know, kind of want to help be one of these catalysts for these symbiotic networks, where do we start? Do it, it, okay. it's just a matter of, calling up various, you know, people in various organizations, farmers, uh, and just start having conversations and, and, and start kind of talking about creating these networks? Like, how do you, how do you advise uh, people in different regions to kind of start if they want to be a catalyst? That's a great question. And um, that's really my passion and what I'm here for. And what, you know, here to do is to support that kind of local empowerment and, I am you know, building a training guide into my book that's going to have it step by step, like do this step two. This, these are the principles. These are the values, you know, kind of gentle guidelines, if you will, um, but also steps on how to hold the first meeting, um, how to what is the process? Because it's there's so many ingredients to building a network in a way that's symbiotic. Mm -hmm that it's a challenge for us to, to know how to do in our, paras I call it a parasitic extractive culture. So that's my biology, right? Yeah. Parasitism, that's what everybody's used to. Everybody's used to it being about dominance mm -hmm. and a taker culture, you know, where you feel or believe or are taught in media or politicians or business or religion wherever you get it from the milieu of our culture that in order to get ahead, you have to take. Mm. So that itself is a challenge. So first of, of it, before getting into the like methodological, like yeah. do this, then do this, mm. it's grounding in what are universal principles and values and to align yourself with those and to consider it the good news is the values and principles of symbiotic culture generally are universal and they're found in every culture, every religion, every spirituality. And it also is included in civic and secular culture. Even atheists could, could agree with them, like the golden rule. Mm -hmm. Like literally before you start bringing people together, 
it's important to have an operating system of values and principles to guide how we are treating each other. So that's the, the first piece that's really important is the psychological preparation to get in that uh, head and heart space. For example, when I uh, brought the food system leaders together and the way that I did it was in a respectful way, in a way that acknowledged these principles and values. And I, I didn't look at it mechanistically, like, oh my God, the sky is falling. We've got to do this. That was one thing. So I got to check myself. Um, I wanted to identify myself with being a, a you know, power for unifying my community because I cared about it. I cared about the place that I live. So that was my allegiance was to the people, the place, the life forms. And for myself, it would be, uh, you know, a transcendent experience. For me, it was spiritual. For you, it might be something, you know, might be called something else. But that was important to get that alignment. So that's the general first uh, step. And we go into those principles like the golden rule, you know, about keeping things local, about local empowerment, about building decentralized organisms, not a new organization. Those are principles, both on a personal level and a collective level to get alignment on. So assuming there's agreement on that, and, and I guess we'll see, right? Uh, but they've been effective, is the, it's a step-by-step -step approach is you do an inquiry process, and I go through that in, in, in the endless detail um, in what I'm laying out, what I'm gonna share, but it's, it's more like identifying key super connectors or clusters. That's the first step is very important. For example, in Northern Nevada, I think there were maybe 10 farmers markets run by owners of these farmers markets or organizations that were running these farmers markets. Instead of me bringing all 10 of those leaders together, instead I thought, wow, there's this nonprofit that actually is a coalition of all of those farmers markets in the entire region. Now that person is highly leveraged so instead of bringing 10 farmers market leaders in that sector of the food system together, I could focus on one individual. Then my next question for that individual, that's a super connector. Do they have the capability of practicing intentional mutual benefit? Like, are they able yeah. to operate in a distributed networked organization in a community, or are they just looking at it as a stepping stone to get power? People like that need to self you know, exclude themselves. So we have to be conscious of that. There are these operators out there with agendas. When you're in a community context, we're in a culture that's uh, not healthy. It's uh, there's a lot of toxicity in business. And I'm a businessman, so I can speak to that. I've also run nonprofits, so I can, you know, I've seen both sides, but it's there. So you got to be really careful and selective. So it's a combination of identifying a super connector and in a sense, finding out what their values are. Are they in alignment with symbiotic culture? And it has nothing to do with, do you agree with climate change being a problem or not? Uh, or are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? 
Are you for the death penalty, against the death penalty? Are you all these distinctions? Those are irrelevant. What's relevant is you're looking for human beings that have essential quality and character that you can count on and trust as you enlist them. So you then once you've identified a number of them, and I'm, I'm not gonna get into it in detail, but there's ways of identifying who these cluster leaders are without having to use uh, network software. There are ways of doing it, and I could share that another time. Um, but once you've identified these cluster leaders, you'd start meeting with them individually. That's how you find out who they are, whether they're in alignment. So this is another uh, success secret that I've learned is you don't immediately call a meeting of 10 to 20 people. Yeah. Think about what happens. First of all, if you're not clear what you're doing, what the purpose is, people start arguing. Right. It's just human nature. It's just the way it is. So the way to deal with that is you need to be able to weed out the people that are complainers and the negative ones that are just going to show up they're like lurkers or trolls, but it happens in the face-to-face -face world. So once you have these individual meetings, then you identify these super connectors and you wanna find representatives from all parts of a food system. So you don't wanna get all farmers together because that's not building a market. You need farmers, you need restaurateurs like consumers, you need other uh, stakeholders. So once you do that, then you'd have your first meeting of five and you build alignment on the principles and values and the goals and how we're gonna conduct ourselves, how we're building this network, what the leadership qualities of a network like this are. Um, and a local food system network is a really specific thing. And the first thing you would do is you would wanna find out whether there is such a thing in your region. And what'll happen invariably, so you put in, like literally Google local food system network and like what's your, what's your town or what's your town or county? Me? Yeah. Uh, Boone, Watauga County. There you go. You put in that county, local food system network, literally Google it. And what'll come up is it'll give you pieces. Sometimes you'll see people might have like a food hub. So food hub yeah, is not a food system. A food hub, yeah. 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 So food hubs, you know, I, we helped to build a food hub in Northern Nevada. Uh, where farmers collectively aggregate their produce into one place and then food co-op, restaurateurs and others who are able to tap into it. So you first would want to identify whether there's something like it or not. And that's something I can help, you know, uh, folks like yourself uh, to do. And I'm, I'm happy to help you uh, because I really enjoy it. So I'm happy to, you know, offline uh you know go through the process yeah okay yeah we'll talk we'll talk yeah okay um just out of curiosity so these kind of um these kind of clusters or super connectors you mentioned like you know not all the leaders of each individual farmers market but kind of like the leader of the farmers market association i'd imagine like another one might be kind of like restaurants that source locally Another one might be some kind of like food pantry or food, you know, like kind of hunger yeah. association. Yep. Um, another one might be um, uh, a food hub or something else. Yep. Like what, what have you found to be like, who are these kind of super connectors? If you were to like say like five or 10, 
Like, like, like yeah. you, you want to represent different parts of the food system. Like, like yeah. the key ones, what have you found? You know, the, the, the good news is for every, and if we can consider this, quote, the local part of the food industry or the food market, yeah. Um, every industry has the same kind of categories. Yeah. In terms of, you know, I was I was on the phone before I answer your question. I was on the phone uh, with a gentleman, and he's in uh, a town. He's in the music industry, mm. so he wants to do a symbiotic network in the music industry, which is really narrow. So he already had five main. Uh, hubs which is part of the food or the music industry yeah and then like 50 sub heads within those five yeah so for example one of the 50 examples of of activity in in that music industry was people who have music studios yeah. so you want to con you want to connect music studios with people who are wanting to like are aspiring artists and connect them that's an example so what we're describing is a is a way of organizing any particular need in the community and we've identified 12 food is is one yeah. um so in the food system yes it would be on the producer side ranchers farmers value added uh, produce you know producers um, on the consumer side, restaurant associations, farmers market associations, food co-ops are, are real aggregates. And um, so then you'd also probably want to find if there's any regenerative community network that has been operating in isolation from the broader food system. So you'd want to identify those folks because you want diversity of perspectives in there. Yeah. The other thing we found is, yes, food security is another cluster. Mm -hmm. So at our first inaugural meeting of the local food system network, you know, we had more than 80 leaders. The, the leader of the, the um, food bank in Northern Nevada stood up and she said something I, I hear a lot, which is I've been wanting to do this for 10 years. I just didn't have the bandwidth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What we're describing is a new function. This it's a new meta function to deal with the meta crises but you can't deal with the meta crises globally. You got to deal with the global meta crises locally, but multiplied across every community, hundreds of thousands of them yeah. happening fractally at the same time. Okay, so then, yeah, so I'm going to go back to another example. So food security, um, hunger, there's another element which would be institutional buying by large organizations. Mm. At our inaugural meeting, we had the head buyer for the local uh, school district at the time feeding 64,000 children every day. They were looking for opportunities to buy locally and directly. That's really powerful. That is a cluster because it's, I would call that institutional food buying cluster. And you'd be surprised you don't have to like force you know this isn't like a political thing mm. where you take an adversarial re the relationship with some of these more traditional food industry folks yeah they're very happy to uh be supportive and involved mm. if given the chance so we never had to make this political like we were forcing this kind of behavior change never happened and yet we created political change 
because of the consciousness around local food. What started in our region as a in 2005 at a time when the business and the political powers basically thought small farming was dead, unimportant. Let's just pave over potential farmland and build a parking lot or build a, I don't know, some song like that, or build like a, you know, condos or retail, whatever. They get the property tax increment. That was the mentality. Within six months to a year of building a movement like this, you could affect the consciousness to the point where at some point, they don't, they don't feel like that anymore. The politicians, the business community, they just see you know, where the energy's going. And they say, we love farmer's markets. We love the smart, small farmer. So that's the, that's the peril, but that's the beauty of being human is that we're malleable. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Um, so you're writing a book, uh, and you've also mentioned the Symbiotic Culture Lab is, is being unveiled in this fall. Uh, do you want to talk about that and, and kind of how people can get in touch with you if they're interested in consulting and, you know, interested in, um, you know, connecting with you on social media? Sarah, thank you for you know letting me uh, let me share that. Um, yeah, I've I've pretty much been in the trenches, mm -hmm. literally like you know doing work in different communities. So I, you know, this is my first book, and I'm realizing that there are thousands of other great ideas out there, and uh, so that's why I appreciate you know being able to make this. Uh, public and I'm realizing I'm going to need to do a lot more of that to uh, to distinguish what this is about because it's challenging to understand the distinction between traditional community development and organizing comparing that to symbiotic community uh, development and organizing um, so that's why we call it symbiotic culture lab lab as in we're all part of taking certain ideas that, that we found work and that are universal and that humans have been doing for thousands of years and reframing them into a new uh, program of building community movements. And in doing that, it's a culture change. So what drives economics and politics is culture. We're steeped in a, what I would call an extractive culture that promotes dominance in all walks of life. That's what we're used to. So it's really hard for people in organizing anything because we don't trust each other. We, we think everybody's carrying more narrow agenda and we're just waiting for the shoe to drop, whether it's on the phone, we're having dinner and somebody's calling us or there's some, you know, religious person telling you you need to have their religion coming to your door usually around dinner time or, you know, when you're busy and occupied. So we're used to that. Symbiotic culture is, is really the best of humanity. And that's important. So these principles and values, so these values are like, just give you some examples. So love is a primary value. Love is a driver. It's not love as a feeling. It's not love as an emotion. This is love as actually analogous to gravity 
Love is the glue that connects everything from the subatomic level to the you know foundation of galaxies and solar systems and our planet and our planet. We're blessed with life. And then, you know, human life, which has the capacity to reflect and to be and have agency and to become aware that there are these principles and that we could apply love in a unifying way. We can consciously see that love is a principle that seeks to connect. It's just part of archetypally um, the architecture of reality. Now, that's my view personally. You don't have to believe that in order to apply these principles. Mm. You can come from an atheist, agnostic, secular humanist perspective and still participate because these values are universal. The difference is if you're more secular and postmodern modern, that basically um, you, your belief is that man invents these principles and values like the golden rule as a kind of a social cohesion mechanism. Hey, that's fine. If you want to believe that I don't, I, I believe these are intrinsic principles. So getting these values is, is the, is a alignment of this intention is important values, culture. You, you need to have that kind of DNA to sustain a network. And that's the one thing I learned from Sarbodia is what makes them the most powerful, you know, movement on this planet for making change with millions of people involved is they have shared values. They're fortunate. They had Asian culture for thousands of years. So it's homogenous. They also had Buddhist shared values. So they're fortunate as well. And for them, they nutshelled it. They just really took the best of Buddhism and these basic values of compassion, loving kindness, joy in the joy of others, and equanimity. Like, who could disagree with any of that? I mean, you don't have to be even a Buddhist. So that's where I learned. I go, wow, that's really amazing. They literally are building bioregional ecosystems by focusing on being compassionate, sharing loving kindness as you're you know, growing more food, building irrigation canals, building businesses, building schools. You have equanimity, that is, you're, you have a balanced state of consciousness so that you don't like, you know, when you're organizing community, you apply that value, that part of our character, our nature, so that you can be balanced and you're not like freaking out emotionally or getting mad at people and, and all those things that we do when we try to organize community. So that's why those are important. So it's the value part and the principle part that's in, important um, distinction of what this is compared to other community development. And it was such a challenge for me to figure that out in the West because we're pluralistic and we just got this post-postmodern era where there's no sense that there is any truth. There's no sense that anything means anything other than what we tell it to like, oh yeah, we made this have meaning. Well, okay, if you made that there's no meaning, your meaning, you could legally say something that has you know meaning, like building community and values could have meaning. So this is actually part of meaning making. Mm -hmm. But instead of this being meaning making from the outside, 
it's like collective sense making in the community where the people they're empowering themselves by a gentle container to create meaning for them to build their own vision and i believe it's how you're going to build a global movement but there's no need to build a global movement like in the old way which is you build some network and you build a nonprofit you raise a ton of money and you got all these slick glossy whatever you know infomercials that's not what this is about. In order for this to grow fractally, it has to be left to, with the gentlest container of, from which people build networks to empower themselves that they name, that they control. Nobody own, owns that outside of that community. They do. That's key. So that's the first part of symbiotic culture, the values that are the glue. The second part that I learned from Sarvodius Bioregional ecosystems are hard to do because it requires us to create trans-tribal relationships. And it's something that we just don't like as people. We want to be with our, our, our cool people, like-minded people. I saw a post um, on Twitter that really got to this point by somebody in the Web3 movement that was really cool. And it's something that I feel as well. And it's I'm not looking for like-minded people who agree with me. I'm looking for like-hearted people. Hmm. Yeah. Because ultimately, it's the heart-to-heart -heart connection between us. That's the only thing that's real. Anything that's intellectual, political ideologies, religious belief systems, those are imposed and are just structures and constructs that people have made but it takes away from the human connection. So the other aspect, yes, of building these ecosystems, which is the second part, is these networks develop in a certain way. And that's the second piece that Symbiotic Culture Lab, I'm encouraging this and wanting to partner with both local, but also global organizations who, um, you know, we are, we're all trying to do something very similar. Yeah. And I, my piece is really narrow, which is how do you help people get along to the point where they can collaborate, what it takes to collaborate, and then what it takes to build these networks. That's the piece that I'm focusing on. I'm not really focusing on like a five-year economic plan or I have no like bioregional vision or some economic, I mean, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not I'm not an expert in any of those things, but I do know about community and I, I, I do know what works and we have some good models out there uh, to, to work with. So that's the hope. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I'd like to think that, you know, the Doomer Optimism Network we're building uh, does, is kind of, you know, it, it has a core set of values which uh, have to do with, uh, reviving community and cultural life has to do with, uh, you know, environmental sustainability, um, has to do a lot of, you know, most of the time with like relocalization. And these are, and, and, and that's a, that's a, that's a pretty broad container though. We find that, you know, there's a lot of people kind of, I would call the eco left, uh, that are kind of part of it. And there's also people who are kind of reactionary right wing. Who, who resonate with the what as well and everything in between. Yeah. Uh, and there is conflict within there because a lot of these, inevitably a lot of these other issues come up, you know, people might follow each other because 
they're sharing, you know, garden posts, and then they'll fight about uh, abortion or something else. Um, uh, but because there's this kind of larger framework, but but at the same time, it's not completely open either, right? Because you know there there are other ideologies or other frameworks that are say much more neoliberal or or techno utopian in nature yeah. that we just kind of fundamentally disagree with, and so I, I'm I guess I'm asking you know like. It, it, it doesn't seem like you can be so broad that you're eventually just going to give up any of your, you know, all of your values, right? We don't want to make artificial distinctions, um, and we don't want to discount real differences that people care about. But finding kind of the right frame of like, you know, what is it that most of us want, yeah. um, and how do we go about pursuing that, even though we might disagree in, some, in many other issues. Um, but there is still some containment there. There is still some distinction of like, you know, we are responding to, you know, the, the industrial food system, which we, which we think is destructive. We are responding to kind of, you know, globalist trade regimes that are neo-colonial and extractive and exploitative of cultures around the world, right? Like we aren't incorporating those views. So there is, there is still some uh, distinction. I, I wonder if you want to just respond to that. Uh, you know, yeah. Um, everybody come in, all of your ideas are great. Then it just becomes like a, a mush. Well, it's, yeah. So that, that's not how the symbiotic network is. It's functional. Yeah. Because it's functional, it's laser beam focused on functions. So one function, if you relate to food is how can we get everybody in the local region to start producing more food and consuming more food. How do we make the connections to increase the our capacity, which has all these global ramifications? You know, as everybody, your you know your uh, your viewers probably know about you know the average food item takes right. all but this transport. All, all so that's part of it. There are a lot of people who don't agree that that should be a priority. Like they'll say, no, global trade of food is more efficient. You know, um, if you know this region shouldn't focus on producing more food, if uh, I got you. Efficient, you know, producer of that particular item. Everyone should be regionally specialized. Iowans should produce corn, soybeans, and that's it. There are a lot of people who believe that very strongly, and so, and well, so this is this is probably at least believe that you want to yeah. do what you're saying. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I get it, and there's a lot of different names for movements trying to achieve localization. There's regenerative community, there's localization, there's bioregionalism. Another one that I probably am connected to more, but I, I don't identify with any ism, but is cosmolocalism. So that probably addresses what you're saying, which is the idea of building up a local economy, a bioregional economy, isn't in contrast to um, operating either, you know, having regional, national, or global production, right? It just means that if you look at the economic and political power dynamics of centralized authority on this planet, local communities are like vassal states where being extracted from. So no matter what your political point of view about it, um, at least in the initial phases of just increasing your local economy, your local food production is something that it's just the people who want to do that will do that. The ones that 
have different political beliefs or ideological perspectives, they can join a group of people that are in favor of neoliberalism or they can go join their group. This is about uh, an intense laser being focused, in this case of food, growing more local food, evolving more regenerative practices and consuming more, building a full on marketplace where you might have a thousand organizations working together and really having 20 to 30 people that are meeting to hold the core, to hold the, the space for that to happen. The magic happens on its own. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The other thing about differences is by coming together, you're right, this isn't to gloss over and pretend that differences don't exist. Yeah. This is literally though, a reframing of how we connect because the existing order, the centralized global system wants us polarized into our separate divided camps because a dominant system, divide and rule has been in existence for thousands of years. Even James Madison, the founder, one of the founders indicated that that's the best way to go. And that's probably why we ended up with a strong federal system in the US is they believe that politicians of all stripes wanna believe that, but it requires us to be divided. So the idea of coming together isn't to come up, come up with some common religion or common political ideology, it's literally survival. Yeah. And it's literally to deal with the challenge that both right wing and left wing could see or no wing could see in centralized power and authority. They're taking us off the cliff. They're driving us with this culture that's taking us off and driving us up to extinction. It's this acceleration of these negative factors that can be turned around simply by getting people who are in alignment together first. That's why it's important to do that. Um, an example is I, I ran into this evangelical Christian, more right-wing political pastor in Reno. Turned out he was an elder organic farmer. Like he had this literally amazing permaculture thing behind his church. I had a guy who was this neo-pagan, used to wear like bells coming to business meetings that would, you know, jingle. And he had a permaculture regenerative school. They would never have met, but I got them together. And they connected. Yeah. Will the pastor ever be supportive of gay marriage? Probably not. Will the neo-pagan guy ever build trust that this, you know, pastor is not going to impose his other values, whatever he might have? Probably not. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. What's relevant is production. What's relevant is practicing these values and making stuff happen. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Um, I mean, that's kind of a big thing we focus on in the Doomer Optimism sphere is, is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there, what I call galaxy brains, who, who are trying to develop kind of the intellectual frameworks for the transition. And, and that's great. But at the same time, focusing on, you know, our basic life support systems and how we can support each other in those, um, you know, has to come first and, and will increasingly have to come first in the future. And that's something that a lot of people can organize around, right? You want safe, healthy food. You want to not destroy the, the eco, ecological base that, that will yeah. your grandchildren to, to be able to do the same thing, right? This is something that a lot of people for many different uh, political, you know, ideologies all over the spectrum can, can kind of get on board with. Um, and so that's, you know, focusing on that we found to be, to get a lot of traction.
Um, so that's that's part of it. The other is the human part that we really need to practice whatever spiritual development a person may be coming from or none in order to build this kind of collaboration and new culture. It's not easy. We really need to be able to keep our focus on and eyes on the prize of what we're doing rather than going back to creating factions and fighting each other. To know how to not do that is important and it takes daily practice. I'll give you one concrete example. My wife and I are shopping to, you know, we're have an unfurnished department here. We went to the Salvation Army thrift store because we wanted to get used recycled stuff and support them. So I'm sitting there, I found this office desk that I'm on right now. And I say, oh yeah, I like that. And it seems like a lot of people in there were like really trying to get their stuff. So I went away, I, I kind of made it so that it was not gonna be sold. And, and my wife uh, found these two cool Japanese lanterns and said, oh, that's really cool. They were in a place nobody could see them. So I stuck them on the desk, right? I stuck them on the desk. And um, of course somebody came along. So this elderly guy, with a mask on he was like breathing hard and he was kind of ambling over and and he's he made a beeline for for my lamps you know and i was going to go over literally this is natural i was going to go over and tell the guy hey those are my lamps dude and uh, my wife looked at me and she goes come on he's he's an older guy he wants those lamps so kind of halfway on the way there i said sir uh, you're welcome to take those and he goes really Okay, and then that's the beginning of the story and it, I'll make it quick. So then he, he, he put them aside. Later, I was trying to find a mover for the table and I was sitting there talking on the phone. They were gonna like overcharge me like 500 bucks for like two hours or something. And he, he, he this guy, this older guy happened to be sitting next to me. He goes, um, you know, I've got some guys working on my house. I've lived up here for 40 years and I think they might be available to uh, have a truck and move you. Mm -hmm. So the guy invited us to his home. We're strangers. My wife and I go to his place an hour later. We're in this really amazing kind of uh, like uh, compound. And the guy started saying, hey, do you want this art piece? Do you want this? You know, I, I got like a painting from him. It was really cool. He had some other things that we might need. It literally takes to do what I did takes awareness, okay? I'm not saying I'm a good person at all, but I just have to think about it because it's important to me to, I wanna be in that headspace and that heart space. That's trust. I have to trust that if, if I give up those lamps right then and there, that the way this universe works, whether it's God or whether it's some other uh, thing you believe in, that we're taken care of, which is, that's trust, but it's also compassion. I had compassion. This is an older guy is trouble breathing. He wanted the damn lamps. So it's like, okay, cool. That reduced this wall of the ego from around me. It made me more permeable and open. I was able to do intentional mutual benefit yeah. and it resulted in a tenfold value exchange for the value he got of my, those lamps. I got a tenfold. Plus, the guy apparently was part of some statewide nonprofit that gave free legal service to poor people. He's connected and he wants to make local food part of the entire state of Hawaii. I literally ran into a guy that has 40 years of local connections, and that's how it works. Mm. It's not a science, it's more 
responding to you know your heart and being intuitive and that's what emergence is about it's not it's not for everybody because we like structure we like to do it this way this way but you have to be open to however you want to call it something higher working whether it's our bioregion our you know whether it's god whatever you call it it doesn't matter but what matters is that we need to open up to this uh this type of space in in order to be effective at building true community collaboration. So it's more than just intellectually agreeing on climate or an environment. It's these um, inter uh, values that are, are key to it. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Um, uh, we'll put, uh, you can uh, send me any contact information if people want to connect with you. We can put those in the show notes. Um, okay. I also invite you if you ever want to host a podcast. Um, usually, when we interview people, uh, uh, they're now qualified to. If, okay. If you, you know, one of the super connectors that you you want their voice to be heard, and you want to host them on this platform, you are you are welcome to do that. Uh, so I just wanted to, to to make that offer to you as well. Um, well, thank you. This has been great, uh, Richard. Uh, inspiring. So I appreciate that. Um, thank yeah. you. Any any last words? Um, hey, let's follow up any practical help in your region. I would love to uh, support any kind of, you know, give you some uh, tips on uh, how to build, say, a local food system network. And uh, also, thank you for doing this. And thank you for Doomer Optimism. It's really important what you're doing, your work. And I, I enjoy, you know, your, you know, quips sometimes uh, on Twitter, which I find to be a fairly decent platform for making connections like like we have. And uh, anything I can do to support your effort as I'm going out, like links as I build my website and things like that, I'm, I'm really happy to spread the word and to, to support your work. Cool. So. Well, great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely we'll definitely be, be in contact. And thank uh, you very much. Yeah, Thanks uh, for the, the opportunity. Great. All right. Take care, Richard.